tonight. We are beginning a new series entitled Emmanuel, and uh, this is going to be a seven-week series, and what we're going to do is just kind of uh, treat it as kind of an on-ramp as we approach the Christmas holidays. We're going to do seven different um, lessons here. The first one we'll begin with tonight is what we call um, the problem, okay, and I'll explain all of that tonight. Next week, we're going to focus on the plan of Christmas or Emmanuel. We're going to move then to the promises and the prophecies of the Christmas uh, season. We're then going to uh, talk about the people and places. We're going to talk about the pleasure and the pain of Christmas. And then finally, on the last Wednesday of November, we're going to end with the purposes, the fulfillment of what uh, Christmas means and uh, what Christmas accomplished. Um, you know, context, when you're reading scripture, context aside from a tender heart, is one of the most important things. And as we approach this series, what my desire is, is to give a very large context, not so much the specific details uh, when we study the Christmas season, but more of a a larger context of what's going on all throughout Scripture. Um, And I realize that that some of this may be a little bit... um, uh, elementary for, for some of you, uh, uh, more mature saints who have been walking with the Lord longer. Um, but again, we're building a library, a theological library. And frankly, um, it's always good sometimes to go back to the beginning and to relearn the things that we already know. And the Lord can remind us of those things. And so I'm excited to begin the series with you tonight uh, as we look forward to the Christmas holidays. I want to go ahead and remind you that as of tonight, you are now 11 and one half weeks away from Christmas. To bring a little more perspective, you are now 81 days shy of making sure that all your gifts are purchased and wrapped before Christmas morning. Um, Another way of looking at it, you're 1,944 hours away from Christmas. You are 116,640 minutes from Christmas. I mean, we're getting really close, but for a greater perspective, you are 6,998,400 seconds away from Christmas. And so um, as you look ahead to Christmas uh, for the um, immediate context of your life, uh, I want us to look scripturally as we approach this season so that we can see things in a much grander scale. I want us to understand um, some of the nuances and holes that we may have missed. And Lord willing, over the next seven weeks, we will be able to do that. You know, as the Christmas season approaches, we always, um, we see billboards and we see post on social media and we see people wearing, you know, the the Christmas sweaters. And a lot of times you'll see this message that rings out so loud and so true. It says, Jesus is the reason for the season, right? And that is so true. That is is so true and it doesn't need to be apologized for. Jesus is the reason that we uh, had this season of Christmas. But the question is, why was this season necessary to begin with? And the answer I want to dig in with you tonight is that there was a problem. There was a problem in the earth. There was a problem with the human race. Um, Jesus was injected by the Father into a place of spiritual death and spiritual darkness. He was injected. The scripture says that he was a light that went into dark places, that he was life in a place that carried death. 
And so as we begin to look at the Christmas story, uh, sometimes what we can do if we're not careful is we can immediately jump to Matthew 1 or to Luke 2 or whatever the case may be and begin to read that story. But what I want to remind us of tonight is that the reason for the season did not begin in a manger. It began in a garden. Way back in the opening chapters of Genesis, there was this entire unfolding of these events um, that sometimes if we aren't careful, we can just kind of gloss over because we are on the other side of those events without appreciating the gravity of those events. And so tonight what I want to do is I want to read to you um, a couple of portions from Genesis 1, 2, and 3. This takes us all the way back to the Garden of Eden, the events that inspired there. And so I want to read some of these portions to you. They're in your notes or on the screen. Scripture says this, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. He breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils, and he became a living person. The Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend it and to watch over it. But the Lord God warned him, you may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. And so as the events unfold, we're, we're reminded in scripture that the serpent comes along. He tempts the woman Eve and the Bible says that she was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious and she wanted the wisdom that it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it too. And at that moment, their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves and God comes and confronts them over their sin. And the scripture says that then the Lord, after he confronts them, the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. So the Lord God banished them from the Garden of Eden. Tonight, I want to talk to you about a topic that isn't really referred to much in uh, many Christian podcasts or on uh, many uh, Sunday morning programs uh, of churches. I want to talk to you about what we call in the church the doctrine of original sin. I want to talk to you for a moment um, about some descriptions of this doctrine because if we do not understand this uh, core part of the human experience, then Christmas really doesn't make sense whatsoever. If it were not for the events in the garden, the events in the manger would not even have been necessary. And so we must understand what happened before so that we can understand what happened later and where we find ourselves in Christ right now. And so tonight in your notes, very quickly, I'm going to run through a couple parts and I'll speed up and I'll slow down at different parts. So just try to stay with me. Number one in your notes, I want to talk to you first about what we call the sickness of sin. Sin more than anything else for the human, destroyed our relationship with God. The creator comes, he forms man from the dust of the ground. He breathes the breath of life into the man and has an intimate relationship with the man. But because of man's actions, he breaches that relationship. That relationship now, that sin now separates him from his creator. There's a chasm between God and man like there wasn't at any time in the garden up until that point. 
We're reminded of this. It's called the doctrine of original sin. Now, I know that um, some of you, if you maybe have been to Bible college, taken some, um, uh, some courses, different things, I know that this can be defined different in different ways and give uh, certain emphasis to, but, but let me just give you my, uh, my easy definition of what we call original sin. It's the idea that Adam's sin affected himself and all humanity for all time. Original sin is the idea that Adam's sin affected himself and all of humanity for all time, right? And we see this throughout our experience as parents, as our, our experience as pastor was sharing earlier through betrayal, even of friends and, and family and all these different types of layers. I remember the first time where I really began to understand original sin in the sense that, that it doesn't just affect some people, but it affects all people. And it affects all people throughout all time. And I saw it through the lens of being a father. I remember one, one uh, morning, uh, I guess it was a, a Saturday morning, I was laying in my bed and one of my children, I don't even remember which uh, child it was, uh, but I remember we were laying in bed um, and my child was laying in bed with me and we were kind of playing around. It couldn't have been more than two. I, I would say a year and a half, two something like that. And I had this, this spot on my abdomen that was kind of sensitive to the touch. And they were curious and, and they kind of looked over and they went to go touch. I said, no, 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 baby, don't, don't touch that. that. That hurts, daddy, don't, don't touch it. Went about playing. About 30 seconds later, looked over and went to go touch my abdomen. I said, no, 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 listen to me. I need, I need you to understand if you do that, it's gonna hurt daddy and you're gonna get in trouble, okay? Okay, about 15 seconds later, and, and we did this two, three, four times we did this, and it became apparent to me in this moment, it crystallized for me the idea of original sin. That each of us born, every person that's born, Scripture says that uh, we have all fallen short of the glory of God. Uh, there is no one who is righteous, not even one. The writer of Ecclesiastes and Paul would say, um, none of us are righteous, none of us are good. We have all missed the mark and we have inherited the sinful nature. Every person that's ever been born throughout all human history, every person has inherited this, and so we are bent towards sin. Uh, Paul would write it in, in these terms in Romans chapter 5. Paul would say, sin came into the world through one man. He's talking about Adam. Sin came uh, into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So what Paul's saying, he's saying, listen, Paul was the gatekeeper. And when Paul breached the relationship between holiness and sin and he allowed sin in, it didn't just allow sin into him, but into every person that would be born after him, into his seed. And so in this way, what we find is that not only did Adam's sin disrupt his relationship with God, but it disrupted our relationship with God. This is why Jesus said to Nicodemus, he said, listen, you need to be born again. He said, yes, you, you've already been one, but you've already been born in the, in the physical realm, but your spirit is dead. You have inherited this dead spirit. And so you need to be born again so that your spirit can come to life, which is only done through faith in Christ. And so um, sin initially, and most importantly, it destroys our relationship with God. There's a separation there. But number two, sin distorted the image of God within us. 
So there are two things that humanity has in common. There is a bond that we share regardless of what language a person may speak, regardless of what culture, what race uh, they may be. There are two things that bond every single human on the face of the planet. The first bond is this, that we are all made in the image of God. Economic status doesn't matter. None of it matters. We are born in the image of God and we all carry what we call intrinsic value. And what that means is that we are above value as a human far above anything else that's been created. We all as humans across the board, we share this bond. But the second bond that we carry together is the bond of sin. That although we were created in the image of God, we have marred that image inside of us. The image of God is now distorted within us. And so there is like an ugliness about us because of the sin. Are we made in the image of God? Absolutely. Do we have the value? Absolutely. Are we marred? Absolutely. And so this is the need for Christ to come. Number three in your notes, sin disrupted the creation of God. So we realize that in the world that we live, there, there are what we call natural evils. So this is why there are viruses. This is why there are uh, tornadoes. This is why there are earthquakes and volcanoes, all of these kind of things. It's because when, when Adam sinned, it didn't just break him. It broke all of creation. Okay, so this is the context for, for the world in which we live. This is the problem that Christ came to resolve. He came to redeem not only our souls, but Paul would say all of creation is what Christ came to redeem. And so there is what we call the sickness of sin. Now, again, um, in, in many circles in, in modern you know, Western Christianity, um, the doctrine of sin is not talked about a lot. And and. Part of that is because uh, sin is very offensive to talk about. It, it, I don't want people telling me where I'm wrong, okay? But that's what the doctrine of sin does. It shows us where we are fallen, but it doesn't just stop there scripturally. It shows us where we can be redeemed, okay? And so although this isn't a very popular doctrine in, in many Western churches, I want to remind us of this, that in the end, sin is incredibly it's far more destructive and nefarious than we may give it credit for. And the trouble that we find even within, you know, evangelical churches in the West is what we're finding through studies is we're finding that average Christians do not understand the gravity of what sin has done to them or what sin has done to the world. And so therefore the worldview has shifted towards things that it should not shift towards. I want to show you a photo tonight of um, some soldiers here. What you're seeing here is uh, uh, a photo of a bunch of soldiers. These are Nazi soldiers, okay? And they were captured by allied forces and they were taken into a movie theater. In this movie theater, they were shown um, footage, photos, and, and film of concentration camps that were led by the Nazi regime. And if you notice their facial expressions, some of them are, are kind of sterile, but some of them are covering their eyes, some of them are weeping, some of them are stunned at what's going on. And the reality is this, is that most of these men 
probably had no idea what was going on in the concentration camps. They were part of a system. Maybe they were on the front lines just fighting for, for a cause, their country of what they believed in. But they didn't realize what was going on beneath the surface. And as you can see, it was a sobering reminder for them to do that. I'm afraid that in, in much of the Western church, that's exactly what's going on with the, with the doctrine the teaching of sin. I'm afraid that we view our standing in a, in a certain way um, in relationship to sin where we don't understand really what's going on. And then all of a sudden, when we begin to open scriptures and when the teaching of God's word goes forth and all of a sudden the spirit of God begins to work and to reveal these things to us, all of a sudden it's appalling. It's shocking that I am a part of a system like that. Now, let me qualify. We are obviously a part of a new system. We're a part of a new creation. I understand that. But we're still wrestling against flesh and blood. We're still, uh, you know, we're, we're kind of bent towards sin. And so it's important for us to remember um, the depth and the gravity of all this for this reason, not to remind us how terrible we are. Nobody wants to live like that. Nobody wants to live like that. Please don't text me and tell me how horrible of a person I am, okay? But what we need to be reminded of is the depth of our sinful nature for this reason. When we realize and when we come back to ourselves and we recognize the depth of which we have been removed from, all of a sudden there's a greater gratitude for what Christ has done. Now I wanna exalt Christ, not because I'm having a good Sunday morning, but I wanna exalt Christ for what he's done in saving my soul from the depth and depravity of my sin. And so this is the sickness that we call sin. Now, if sin were a disease or a sickness that was coursing through our veins, Usually what happens when you have a disease like that is it manifests itself through certain symptoms, correct? So what we have here is we have a situation where every human is uh, infected with sin. We're infected with a sickness, but it manifests itself in a whole lot of different ways with a whole lot of different symptoms. So depending on who you are, it may manifest itself in hatred, unforgiveness, lust, uh, selfishness, whatever the case may be. That is not necessarily the core of our sinfulness. That's a symptom that we have sin, if that makes sense. And so as we begin to talk about the symptoms of sin, I just want to remind us um, how we engage in sin on four general levels here really quickly. Number one is this. We sin when we reject God. Okay, this is the idea that uh, a person who is a staunch atheist rejects the idea that there's a, there's a higher power, that there's a created being who is creator. Um, this is the rejection of God through other religions who do not embrace the, the God of, of Christianity. Um, this is also seen in some progressive, um, they would call themselves progression, progressive Christian movements that denied the deity of who Jesus was. They denied that Jesus was God. That is a rejection of God. Um, that is a defiance of God. And that is one way in, in which uh, people sin. Number two, which is a lot more common, we sin when we resolve to do what we should not do. Now, this is obvious. This is my daughter who wants to keep touching my spot on my abdomen. This is you when you're going down the road and you get cut off and you really don't want to cuss, but you end up cussing, 
right? This is when people cheat on their taxes. This is when people lie or engage in pornography, whatever the case may be. This is what we call the sin of commission. And that means that I'm doing something I know I shouldn't do. This is Eve's lot, right? Eve, the, the father God has told Eve, Eve, whatever you do, don't eat from that tree. But what does Eve do? She eats from the tree. She has committed the sin of commission, okay? But then number three, we have uh, sin when we refuse to do what we should do. This is what we call the sin of omission. This is Adam's lot. So Eve goes and does what she should not do, but Adam refuses to do what he should do. So in other words, what should have Adam done? As a husband, as a man, as a protector, as a provider, when he was offered that from Eve, he should have stood his ground. That's what he should have done, but he did not do it, and therefore he sinned in that way. He neglected his responsibility. And so for us, when we refuse to give to the poor, when we refuse to forgive other people after we've been betrayed, when we, when we do not do the things that we know we should do, that is a, a one form of sin. This is the way Paul puts it. I love Paul's language sometimes. He's so brutally honest. Listen to what he says in Romans seven fifteen. He says, I don't really understand myself. I can identify with that, right? I don't really understand myself. I want to do what's right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate or I do what I know I shouldn't do. What is Paul saying here? He's saying, listen, in my, in, even though I am a, a, an apostle, I am still struggling through this. And sometimes I don't do what I know I need to do. And other times I refuse to do what I know I should do. I'm caught in this battle. And I think Paul, what he's trying to do here is he's trying to help us understand and identify with him in his struggles. And then number four and finally is this is that we sin when we reform good into evil. So when I take something that God has good has made that is good, but I mistreat that thing or I overuse that thing or exalt that thing, that is sinful. For instance, uh, the sin of gluttony, right? Food is necessary for every human being that lives. If you want to live, right, you, you have to eat. That's a good gift from God that he gives us sustenance, that he gives us food to eat. However, when we abuse that and we go way, 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 way past the line, now we have turned something good into something that's not good, right? That's, it's, it's an act of sin. It's the same way with sexual relationships. Sexual relationship in the confines of marriage is a gift from God. It is not wrong or gross or bad or anything like that. It is a gift from God. But when that gift from God is misused or abused, all of a sudden we've taken something that's good and we've made it evil. And that's one of the ways that we sin. I love what Cornelius Plantiga, this is what he said about sin in scripture. He says, the Bible presents sin in an array of images. Sin is the missing of a target, a wandering from the path, a straying from the fold. Sin is a hard heart and a stiff neck. Sin is blindness and deafness. It is both the overstepping of a line and the failure to reach the line, both transgression and shortcoming. Sin is a beast crouching at the door. In sin, people attack or evade or neglect their divine calling. These and other images suggest deviance. 
Even when it is familiar, sin is never normal. Above all, sin disrupts and resists the vital human relation to God. And so when we come to this place where we begin to understand, okay, we begin to understand this idea of original sin and that we are all in this, you know, this earthly battle against sin. We go back to the garden again and we find that there are three things that the father did when Adam and Eve sinned against him. Number one is this, God pronounced a curse as a result of their sin. For the serpent, he told the serpent he would crawl on his belly, he would eat the dust of the earth, there would be enmity between uh, him and the offspring of the woman. For the woman, he went to her and he said that she would now have pains in childbearing, that there would be contention between her and her husband for the man. The Lord looked and he said, listen, your, your, your toil for your food, this is gonna be painful. You're gonna earn your keep through the sweat of your brow. These were curses that God pronounced as a result of sin. But number two, what God then did is he came in and he provided a cleansing. So one of the last scriptures I read remind us that the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and he clothed them. So what was God doing in this moment? Well, the book of Hebrews reminds us that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. So even all the way back at the first initial sin, what does God do to cover their sin? He sheds the blood of an animal. He takes the, the covering of the animal. He cloaks them with it, not only to cover their nakedness, not only to cover their shame, but also to cover their sin. So he provides this cleanliness. The problem is, is that this cleansing is only temporary. It's only temporal. And so number three, what does God do? He prophesies a coming cure. A permanent coming cure. It's what we call the first gospel. It's found in Genesis 3.15. This is what the Lord, as he is speaking to the serpent, he's like, he's, he's cursing the serpent. This is what he says. He says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. Now capture this moment for, for just a second. In this moment, the father is speaking to the serpent. To, to like a physical representation of the serpent and speaking in a physical realm type way. This is why most people, most normal people are terrified of snakes. This is why the average person believes that the only kind of good snake is a dead snake, okay? The others, that's a different story we'll deal with later. The point is, is that in this first sentence, what the father's doing, he's speaking directly in the physical realm saying between snakes and, and humans, there's gonna be this, this tug of war. There's gonna be this, this enmity, this, this dislike between you. But then in a moment, the Lord, uh, he shifts and he moves from the physical realm and he goes to the spiritual realm. And in this moment, he's not speaking to a serpent, he's speaking to Satan. And this is what he says. He says, he, meaning the seed of the woman, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So in other words, here in this moment, you have one part of the sentence where God is speaking directly into the physical, but then he shifts really quickly and he begins to speak prophetically. And he begins to say, listen, Satan, I understand what you've done has crippled the entire human race for a really long time. But there's coming a day where a member of the human race and a member of the Godhead 
is going to come and he's going to crush your head and he is going to have success over you. And so the question is this, well, Corey, how, what does all this have to do with Christmas, right? This is not like enjoyable, okay? You don't want to read this as you're sitting on Christmas morning with your children, right? I get that. I understand that. But let me just say, it's so vital that we make the connection between what happened in the garden and what happened in a manger because if the events in the garden had never happened, the events in the manger would not have been necessary. And so all of this that I've been talking about for the last 25 minutes is pointing to something. It's pointing to something. I want to show you one more photo of where it's pointing to. There's a beautiful portrait. Some of you have probably seen a different rendition of, of this. But this is a portrait called uh, Mary Comforts Eve. And what you have here in this photo is you have Mary on the right and you have Eve on the left. And there's so much symbolism here we don't have enough time to get into. But I want to point out a couple of things to you really quickly. We have a serpent here that's wrapped around the leg of Eve, symbolizing her imprisonment to sin. But yet when you see the head of the serpent, you see Mary's foot crushing his head. Here in this moment, you see Eve as in one hand, she holds the fruit of sin. But here in this other hand, she is touching the fruit of salvation. You understand that the whole connection is simply this, that the sin of this woman is going to be conquered by the seed of this woman. The sin of Eve is going to be overcome by the seed of Mary in Jesus. This is how Paul would make the connection. Listen to this really quickly. Romans 5.19, this is what Paul says. He says, for as by one man's disobedience, he's talking about Adam here. As by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So Paul's saying through Adam's obedient, disobedience, we were all made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, talking of Christ, the many will be made righteous. What's he saying? He's showing a contrast here. He's showing a contrast saying, this man was disobedient and it opened the floodgates for destruction. This man through his obedience and perfection and sinless life and sacrificial atoning death, he's made room for life and life abundant. He's shown the contrast in a very similar way. So, so where is the connection? The connection is clear between the garden and, and the manger. But we have to be reminded that Jesus did not just come to earth so that God could walk in human form. And Jesus did not just come to earth so that we could have um, uh, healing in our physical bodies. And he didn't just come to cast out demons and he didn't just come to be kind and to show us a better way of living. Those re he came for all of those reasons, but they are not the primary reasons that he came for. The primary reason that he came is found in Luke chapter 2. In the, in the story of the incarnation of Christ that we do read at Christmas time, this is what the writer of Luke 2 would say, Luke. 
He would say, and there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them and said, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. And here it is. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Jesus came for a whole lot of reasons, but the primary reason he came was to be a savior. Save us from what? To save us from sin. To save us from the destruction and the judgment that sin leads to. Christ came in his own words, I came to seek and to save that which has been lost. And we thank God for that. Amen. So that is the problem as we begin the series of Emmanuel next week. It'll lighten up a little bit after this, okay? Uh, next week, we go into the plan, the grand cosmic plan of salvation. So excited for that. We hope you'll be here. Father, tonight, thank you so much for your goodness to us. And Lord, I want to pray for your special people and your special help over them for this week. Lord, I just pray that as we, uh, as we lean into the holiday season, we may be a little premature here, but as we lean in, I pray that you will prime our hearts and tenderize us, Lord, so that we can approach these holidays in a way that which we never had before. So Father, touch our hearts, help us this week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen, amen, and amen.